Hello everyone, I'm Philip Dickens and this is From the Hill of Megiddo, the podcast serialization of my book of the same name. A trumpet has sounded in the sky and been heard across the world, heralding Armageddon. Miles Darheen, the champion of man, failed to stop Nuado Iron from bringing this about, and has had to kill Lydia McKenna in order to stop her losing her soul to vampirism. Now, let's dive into the next three chapters and see what's to come. Act 2. Trumpets. Chapter 21. As the trumpet sound subsided, it began to rain. Not water. It was blood. It looked black in the moonlight, but the smell was unmistakable. After a moment, something flashed orange in the sky and flames also fell. The fireballs falling from the sky were no bigger than ping pong balls, but the pavement and road crackled and sizzled with each impact. Yes, that means our guests are awake, Gaz said. He'd been pacing back and forth on what would have been the dance floor, now charred and blackened, for over an hour. Not bleeding time, I said. He was leaning on the opposite wall, yet another fag in his mouth and a pile of dog ends at his feet. This waiting was getting tedious. Remind me again where we're not out hunting? Gaz gestured out the window where the streaks of fire that were the only thing other than the moon which penetrated the blackness of the night. Bright snorted. He cast his eyes around the room. The black wall, dominated by the charcoal silhouette of flames, had a line of couches and armchairs pushed against it, alongside wooden chairs and tables. Their occupants had returned to what had been keeping them busy before the trumpet sounded. Playing cards, smoking, or sleep. There were screams and cries somewhere downstairs, begging. When the newcomers started growling, the cries rose briefly before dying out, as, no doubt, fangs tore through flesh. We should have got takeaway for ourselves as well, Fry said. All in good time. There was the sound of footfalls upon steel, and Nuado appeared at the top of the stairs. But you know yourself what it is to be newborn. The hunger must be sated. What's the plan once they're ready, then? Gaz asked. I and my new progeny will be heading south. There's more for us to do before all seven trumpets have sounded, Nuado said. The rest of you still have a role to play in this city. More chaos and carnage? Oh no. Believe me, that will more than take care of itself. When he heard the refrain of It's the end of the world as we know it, Lucius roared with laughter. I handed him a funny look from the woman walking past on the other side of the road, but then she laughed as well. She threw a couple of quarters into the busker's open guitar case. The man with the guitar wasn't the only one trying to capitalise on the events of the night before. There was hardly anybody on the streets yet, and they still ran with blood, shallow pools of it built up around most of the drains, but already sale signs were starting to appear in most shop windows. In most cases, the word sale was hastily prefixed with end of the world, or Apocalypse. His personal favourite offered the seven sails of God's wrath. He passed the main square, where a small band of street preachers were setting up their pitch. Such was the timeless nature of their material that they needed no fresh placards for current events, but an inflated sense of righteousness. Further up the road, he turned a corner and found the cafe that had become a regular haunt of his. It was a family-owned business, nondescript, there were places like it in a thousand other locales, but they didn't hold back on the portions. The tea was always freshly brewed, and of course there was the boy. The young woman behind the counter, Justine, recognised him and smiled when he came in. He smiled back and made his way over to a booth in the corner, by the window. Soon after, she brought him over a fresh pot of tea and made idle chit-chat. He agreed with her that the events of the night before were extremely worrying, but said he was sure that there would be someone out there who knew what to do in such situations. Eventually, she left him with his tea and he drank it in silence, waiting. The boy came in about 20 minutes later. He also knew Justine, but where she had smiled at Lucius, she threw her arms around the boy. They spoke in hurried whispers. Lucius caught only Justine's last word, later, before she turned and hurried into the kitchen at the back of the cafe. The boy stood where he was a moment longer before turning to look at Lucius. Lucius didn't look away, 
Merely smiled and gestured to the chair opposite him. The boy frowned, his brow creasing, but he came. He paused behind the chair and faced the man in the dark suit. Hello, Tom, Lucius said. Thank you for joining me. Would you like some tea? Tom brushed his fringe out of his eyes and glowered. Yeah, no, thanks. You want to tell me why you've just been eyeballing me? Lucius locked his fingers together and cracked his knuckles. I've been eyeballing you, as you put it, because I've been waiting here for you. I want to make you a deal. Here? It's too public, man. Anyways, I've got a supplier. Not that kind of deal, you nitwit. Aren't you tired of the small fry stuff? You were meant for a lot more than dealing weed, heroin and crystal meth to desperate junkies, my boy. A lot more. Whatever. My mum sent you, right? Here to talk me round and save my soul. Lucius laughed. Like the opposite Tom, I assure you. Aside from which, I'm almost certain at this point that your soul is beyond salvation. What, because of the dealing? No. Drugs are a legal issue. Not a spiritual one. Aside from which, when your entry in the Book of Life is being reviewed, you should probably be more concerned with what happened to your sister's puppy, or that boy in Juvenile Hall who called you a faggot. Tom's eyes widened. His hands trembled and he balled them into fists to try and stop it. But, the colour drained from his face. How did you... Lucius grinned and licked his lips. Not a single living soul knows the torments Nathan Baker took to his grave when he turned his bedsheets into a noose, Tom. Not one. But no deed you do in life, big or small, seen or unseen, escapes the ledger that you take with you beyond the grave. This is crazy. Tom crossed his arms. You have no idea what you're talking about. Indeed. And last night a trumpet blast didn't shake the world and herald a rain of fire and blood. Fine. Tom closed his eyes and lowered his head. His hands were still trembling, even with his arms folded across his chest. What do you want, anyway? What's this deal? Good. Now we get to the meat of the matter. You needn't fret, Tom. All I ask is that you play a role. One that you were born for. A role? Yes. One where you speak to people, rally them together and give them hope, much like the prophets did long ago. It won't be hard. Tonight, your rivals will be exposed, and people will know who you are. They will come. All you have to do is lead them. Right, Tom said. And who am I exactly? I think you know. Assume I don't. You have no formal title, really. But theology and popular culture would label you the Antichrist. What? This is ridiculous. I don't know why I've entertained this bullshit so long. Tom stood up. He made to walk away. Lucius got up and followed him. He grabbed Tom's arm and the boy tried to wrench it away, crying out when he couldn't. Lucius pulled the boy towards him and put his other hand against Tom's forehead. Tom gasped and his back arched before seizing up. His eyes turned black and blood poured from his sockets. What's going on? Justine called, coming out into the cafe. When she saw Tom, she shrieked. Everyone in the cafe was looking now. Tom straightened up, panting heavily. Lucius gripped his chin and stared into his eyes as they returned to normal. Now do you see? He asked. Now do you comprehend what your task is? What you are? Tom nodded, his eyes still wide and his whole body trembling. Justine put a hand to his cheek and stared into his eyes, her own filling with tears. Tom? I leave you two to catch up. But don't think for a second you can escape your destiny, dear boy. Lucius turned and left the shop. His job here was done, and he had more appointments before the day was over. Miles sat leaning against the wall outside the entrance to Cyclades Tower as the sun rose. The rain had stopped and the air was still. The ground was still saturated, 
blood not running off and draining as water would have. The grass still smoking and the rooftops of the surrounding buildings were charred. Chimney stacks balanced precariously and tiles were missing from rooftops. Beyond the main street they were on, most houses were a cacophony of noise and confusion. With his heightened senses he could hear dogs whining, children and babies crying and babbling, everyone else talking over each other in several conversations at the edge of his hearing. He made no effort to follow them, only continued to smoke and watch the sunrise. He heard the footsteps, but didn't look up. A moment later, a Nile came into his line of sight, a concerned look on her face. How are you? She asked. He shrugged. I'm alright, I guess. We got off light compared to anybody caught in the rain. That's not what I meant. Ah. He pushed himself up into a standing position and flicked his cigarette away. It made a hissing sound as it hit the ground and was extinguished by the blood. Well, there I guess the short answer is no. You've had to deal with so much pain and loss in such a short time. I cannot help feeling that I am responsible for that. What? You couldn't have... No. My job is to train you and prepare you for your role as the Champion of Man. I should have been here for you long before now. Miles reached out and put a hand on her arm. When he did, he felt a spark. Something tangible that made the hairs on his arm and the back of his neck stand on end. The smell of fresh flowers inflamed his senses. The air around it grew in brilliance. And he squinted, shielding his eyes with both hands. The light faded again when he stepped away from her and he lowered his hands. Okay, we need to have a conversation about that, I think. About what? He looked genuinely puzzled by his reaction. You... You're not human. You're not a vampire either, and I don't think you're a demon. But either way, what are you? He saw her eyes shift to the door, though nobody was coming out. I won't tell anybody if you're not ready for it. Niall smiled, then swallowed. No, it's not that. It's just that... As hard as people find it to accept the existence of vampires, demons and monsters, they manage to in the end because it fits with the fact of how much death, cruelty and hardship there is in the world. I don't. Or at least not the view that most people have of my kind. Distorted by a long absence, I suppose. Miles raised an eyebrow. It rained fire and blood last night. Assume I'm credulous. Fair enough. I am an archangel. Mars's mouth fell open. He stared at her, searching for something to say. In the end, the only thing that sprang to mind was... Wow. Hazel flicked through the TV channels, finally settling on Sky News. It took her a moment to realise that the mute was on and restore the sound. But even without it, the images were clear enough. Footage showed fire and blood raining from the sky in various locations. The captions linked the images to London, New York, Washington DC, Moscow, Cairo, Istanbul and more. In some it was day, in others night, but across the world the rains had all happened at the same time. Now there was some old stock footage of the world's leaders at some kind of summit. The ticker at the bottom of the screen indicated that no statements had been issued yet. Scientists are at a loss to explain the sound, which was heard across the world at 22 minutes past one, Greenwich Mean Time, and the voice of the news anchor said as the footage turned to people outside a London nightclub clapping their hands to their ears, not to mention the phenomenon which followed it. Again, the TV showed clips of fire and blood raining from the sky in various capital cities around the world. Then a bearded Islamic preacher standing outside an East London mosque addressing a gathered crowd. Religious leaders have said that the event heralds the end times, when the righteous will be saved and the wicked judged. The camera now showed the inside of a church, with the Archbishop of Canterbury in the foreground. It seems incredible to say so, he said, but there can be no doubt that what we heard was the first trumpet from the Book of Revelations. This was not an isolated incident, a hoax or an anomaly with an ultimately scientific explanation. This was a sign from heaven and a wake-up call for all men to return to the arms of God. More religious leaders in different settings gave their own take on events. Then the report turned its attention to extremists. 
With the help of subtitles, a prominent Islamic militant called on his followers to help Allah purge the world of non-believers before Judgment Day. An old American woman standing picketing outside a synagogue blamed the false prophets and the fag enablers for the doom to come, from which only her church would be saved. Hazel turned away from the television towards Joel. I really think these bigots getting their moments in the sun to say they were right all along might actually be the worst part of this. Except for the fire and brimstone and death part, Joel said. Well, yeah, she ignored his attempt at a joke. Do we know what to expect next yet? Basically, yes. For the most part, this stuff with the seals and the trumpets is straight out of Revelations, so we should have no surprises with what follows each trumpet. Though that doesn't mean it covers everything, or in the right order, since it doesn't say anything about the involvement of vampires. That we'll have to wait and see. The problem is that we can't really stop any of these events. Until we come up with more concrete details of what comes next, we're going to be reduced to damage control. Then we need to use the time to regroup and get as much information as possible. Once everyone's back, we can brief them properly, but basically we need to know what comes after the trumpets. That's what we're working on now. I'd say give it a day or two. So that's all we can do. Wait. She sighed and glanced back at the television. There were images of panicked crowds flooding into supermarkets and shopping centres to buy whatever they thought might be useful. The two men with a trolley full of lager who declared their intention to party through Armageddon made it laugh. It curdled in her mouth when she saw the old woman buying painkillers to spare her and her dash from the horrors to come. Coverage turned now to people pouring into churches, mosques and temples. Preachers on street corners ranting to large crowds of frightened passers-by. Even protesters marching through the streets. Those who haven't flocked to worship have picked up placards for a more secular form of doomsday cult. The voiceover said, pinning last night's phenomena on global warming and the failures of world leaders to act. This is mental, Joel said. Yeah, she nodded. There wasn't much else to say. They stood watching as footage of the world in panic continued. Crowds had been gathered since early in the morning. By lunchtime on a normal day, you had queues stretching from inside the columns of the two colonnades encircling St. Peter's Square to beyond the obelisk in the centre of the square. On a normal day, several hundred thousand people passed through the square into the Vatican City. The day was not a normal day. By 9am, there were five or six thousand people in the square. The tourists, locals, pilgrims from the closest locales, many milled in the centre of the square by the obelisk or the fountains either side of it. Others stuck to the shade of the colonnades, either sitting on the steps or in amongst the columns. Some gathered at the entrance to St. Peter's Basilica and on the steps leading up to it, figuring, wrongly, that this would give them a prime position. When the bells tolled for 2pm, it was hard to move. The entrance to the Basilica, the steps in front of it and the square itself hummed with the noise of people. The sun was high in the sky, the temperature was 38 degrees, and despite the majority being willing to brave the sun to stake their place, the space around the colonnades was also rammed with people. Once the sun had set, it was impossible to move. Several ambulances had come and gone, collecting those who had passed out in the heat or been crushed by the throng, yet more kept coming. Those sitting on the lowest outcrops of the obelisk found themselves unable to move their legs for the weight of people pressed against them. People stood in the fountains, wet up to their calves or knees, to escape the crush of the crowd. More hung from the four lampposts which framed the obelisk, climbing for purchase. At the bottom of the steps on either side of the basilica, the pontifical Swiss guard had formed a solid flank to stop people passing through the arches leading up to the square. They had their partisans, tall wooden poles with spears mounted on top, crossed in front of them. People were squeezed into every inch of the square, through the columns and back to Piazza Pio 12 where the police could do no more than watch, as even now more people piled into the back of the crowd. All four of the screens in the square were on, showing an image of the still empty balcony above the basilica doors. News helicopters hovered overhead, their lights and the fixed lights at the top of the colonnades illuminating the crushing mass of people. Finally, with crowd control far beyond breaking points and who knew how many fatalities and emergencies hidden within the crowd, 
He emerged onto the balcony. The pontiff held up his hands, appealing for calm, but the buzz became a din broken with cheers and shrieks. In many languages and many voices, the crowd called out for deliverance and salvation. The clamour and shouting fell away once the Pope began to deliver his sermon. His opening line was, We are in the end of times, as foretold in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ to his beloved Apostle John. The Pope focused his words, however, not on fire, brimstone and damnation, but on the hope for salvation. He talked about the promise of paradise on earth after the trials and plagues, and how those who followed the word of God would be lifted up to heaven. Then the Holy Father's skin erupted with boils and sores. Murmurs spread through the crowd like a ripple. It took the Pope a few moments to realise what was happening, then his words cut off mid-flow, and he let out a cry of shock. His hands reached up to his face, rubbing and clawing at the pain. He staggered forward. There was a moment of absolute silence as the crowd saw what was about to happen, and yet could do nothing about it. The Pope crashed into the balcony, still clawing at his face, and lurched over the side. The fall sent him down with enough force that the mass of people below did nothing to cushion his impact. Those directly under the Holy Father crumpled as he collided with them. The crowd reeled in a wave spreading out from the impact, like the ripple on a pond after a stone hits. There were screams, shouts, names being called. From either side of the Basilica, the Swiss Guard charged up the steps. They forced people out of the way, using their partisans to shove the crowd, creating more crushes in the process. Screams and panic spread through the crowd and it became impossible to tell how many people fell as the crowd stampeded and shoved in all directions. One thing was certain, however. By the time the Swiss Guard cleared a path to him, the Pope was dead. Chapter 22 A couple of days later, Hazel reached Cyclade's house and stopped to catch her breath. She had run the six miles from her home to here and her top clung to her back with sweat. She unzipped her hoodie, savouring the chill in the morning air, before heading inside. She nodded to the guard on the security desk, and headed through to the lifts. As she called one, she happened to look back out in the direction of the street, and saw a group of six people approach the doors warily. All had hoods up to cover their faces. They looked about, probably for signs of what was inside the building, and when they were unable to find any, their conversation seemed to get more frantic. One of them nudged another to go inside. The others, clearly not eager to go in themselves, joined in. Hazel ignored the lift that opened in front of her and walked back to the entrance. The group wasn't human. She got the sense in the pit of her stomach, an ache and a tingling. The door sliding open for her startled the group. Can I help you? she asked. They shared a look, unsure. Finally, one of them spoke. Are you the Sentinel? It was a young man's voice. Who are you? We're here to help, if you'll have us. You're demons, Hazel said. They looked at each other and lowered their hoods, revealing dark blue faces with small downward pointing spikes coming out of each cheek and crests on the head of the males. Four men and two women, all young. Yeah, the one who had spoken before said again, but we're not Jillacross. We've got human in our bloodline and no strong desire to be strung up for that. We just want to live without fear of being persecuted, and reckon you're our best chance for that. Hazel waved to the guard, who nodded as she led them all through to the lift area, despite the apprehensive look on his face. What are your names? I'm Toby. This is Rach, Ben, Kev, John and Ellen, he said, gesturing around at each of the others as he introduced them. She regarded them for a moment, chewing her lower lip. Eventually she sighed. Okay. Okay. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but many won't, and you'll have to prove yourself. You know that, right? Toby glanced briefly at his friends. Fair enough. So what do we do? First of all, follow me upstairs. When the lift came again, Hazel took it up to the fifth floor. Hazel, by the way. The lift arrived at the fifth floor, and she led them from a bare, empty central room into the east wing. The wing was split into two large rooms, the first a library with bookshelves stretching across the walls and several tables and computer workstations. There were a couple of people inside who glanced up briefly to acknowledge Hazel when she led the newcomers through into the next room, and then did a double take to see who she was with. 
This room was deliberately sparse and open, with the tables spread apart from one another as much as possible, and several couches boxing off one corner of the room. A television attached to one wall was set on a news channel, facing a row of vending machines and a stand full of newspapers on the other. I've got to go and get myself sorted out, Hazel said, more conscious in the warm room of the fact that she needed to shower. Make yourself comfy and I'll come find you in a bit, alright? They all looked unsure. The whole situation was somewhat bizarre, so it seemed they had no idea how to react. But none of them disagreed, so she left them to it and went down to the first floor to find the showers. Many hours later, Toby instinctively led his friends into the back row of the lecture theatre. They got stares from those already in the room and from those who came in after them, but at least when they were seated they were facing ahead so couldn't continue staring. After Hazel had said they would have to prove themselves, Toby had expected they would face interrogation and testing of some sort. Instead, a man with a very unusual name that he couldn't pronounce had apparently read their minds to confirm that they were indeed telling the truth. He had no idea what to make of that, and although Ben had gone on about how mind reading was a violation, all Toby could wonder was what kind of parents would call their child Puth. Still, at least they could be part of the guild. He had thought convincing people that they were on the same side would be the hard part. Instead, it was remembering everyone's names after being introduced. Jack, who Toby was surprised to learn was in charge despite Hazel being the sentinel, stood up and raised his hands. The room fell silent. Right, it looks like everyone's here, so I'm going to kick off. I'm going to presume that everyone's been watching the news these past few days, but in case you missed it in among the rioting, the looting and the other mayhem, it wasn't just the Pope who was hit by boils and sores. Pretty much every religious leader who had an audience got hit, from the Ayatollah to the Dalai Lama to the preachers who stand on street corners and tell everyone they're going to hell. And that shut the face of the Seven Trumpets. What happens when they sound? Somebody asked. For those of us who aren't au fait with the Book of Revelation, it was a young lad called Joel who answered. The first four are plagues which cause mass death and devastation. We've still got seas turning into blood, poisoned waters, and the sun going dark to come. Rachel grabbed Toby's leg, and when he looked at her, the fear was writ large across her face. He grabbed her hand and caressed it with his thumb. She relaxed a little, but the expression on her face didn't soften. Not that he blamed her. Everyone else looked equally scared. After that, the 5th, 6th and 7th trumpets in turn unleash armies of demons upon the world. Toby wasn't in the least surprised to see people's heads turn to look at the newcomers in the back row. He shifted in his seat, suddenly aware of just how many humans there were all around him. Higher demons, Jack added hastily. Though we do need to discuss what to do about the lower demons. What to do about us? Toby's words, and their harsh tone, took him by surprise as much as anyone else. Jack didn't appear phased by it though. Not you specifically. On the one hand, we've got all the ones who've been recruited by the Jillicross. It seems to form an army. On the other, we've got the rest who escaped them, who are now homeless just as humans have learned that they exist. Even if most of them aren't using the word demon yet. We can't keep them hidden forever. No. An idea occurred to Toby then. It was ridiculous, surely. Insane. Yet still he found himself saying it aloud. So don't try. We don't need to hide. We need to organise. He was surprised to see others, including his fellow demons, nodding in agreement. Jack only raised an eyebrow. Good idea. Think you're up for it? Me? Had he heard that right? Yeah. Having the ideas doesn't get you out of doing the graft, you know. That appeared to settle the matter, and Jack turned to look at Joel. Now, do we know what Nuadu's next move is going to be? Not a clue. Nor how to find him, for that matter. He appears to have vanished entirely. We need to find him, then. I'm guessing as the champion of man, it's my job to confront him. Miles said. You'll need training. Hazel said. She looked quickly at Jess, then back at Miles. You got your arse handed to you last time. If it's your job to fight him, you need to do it better. Right, which brings us back to an aisle, Jack said. Toby noted that she exchanged glances with both Miles and Puth, 
that we couldn't read the expression on her face. You said that you'd come here looking for the champion. I'm hoping that means you can tell us more about what the champions are and what to expect from Nuardo and the others he resurrected. She appeared to relax. Right. I don't think there's much more I can tell you in terms of what a champion is. Their role is to prevent catastrophic events in the struggle against evil. In my other case, to ensure that humanity doesn't lose the War of Armageddon. Okay, so what about the other champions? You've already encountered Nuadu. He was by far the strongest of them all, even before he became a vampire. His charge was to kill the great adversary. You mean the devil? Miles asked. Sort of, but not exactly. The full lore isn't important right now. What matters is that Nuadu waged the campaign that eradicated the vampire race from the earth and slew their maker in battle. He did this with an unparalleled physical strength and a sharp and cunning strategic mind. Jack laughed. You sound like you knew him. And I laughed too, though Toby noticed that her eyes were glistening. It must have been the sunlight coming in through the blinds. Yeah, I suppose. But anyway, the reason he's a threat now is because that fight also killed him. Before dying, he imbibed some of the adversary's blood and resurrected as a vampire. The first of a new lineage. Wait. Yes, shook her head. You said that this happened two millennia ago, yeah? Then why does Noadu bear such a resemblance to him? He pointed to Puth. The battle army was chaotic, but I remember plainly the face of the man before he changed and grew wings. As though he brothers. Ruth closed his eyes. He didn't look afraid or angry, only drained. Yes, he said. But you're human, Miles said. There's no doubt about that from this end. Yep, Puth said. I'm completely human, not a vampire or anything else. But I've also been alive for 2036 years. That's the thing about vampire blood. It can resurrect you from the dead as one of them if enough of your own blood has been drained. But it can also rob you of the ability to age or die if you imbibe it without being fed upon first. That at least explained his odd name, Toby thought, though it was still impossible. No. Jack shook his head. If that was possible, we'd know about it. There were very few vampires about until recently, sure, but we still studied and hunted them. That's not true. There is that old legend about the Vampiri making the human servants immortal, Joel said. The Vamp what? Miles asked. An old vampire hierarchy? It doesn't matter, because they're long gone, and that was just a myth to make them seem more powerful. It's not true. There's a specific ritual involved, but believe me, it's true. I tried to end my own life enough times after it happened to be sure about it. Only he can kill me and only his death can release me to age again. He sighed. If you're really begging for proof, then you can cut my head off. It won't be the first time that's happened. But it does actually still hurt, so I'd rather not. No, me either. Miles cut in. I've had to adapt to a whole load of mad bollocks being real in a very short space of time. And I'm not the only one. Ruth's demonstrated pretty clearly that he's on our side. So, I'm willing to take the immortal thing on faith. Thanks. Don't mention it. Now look, Hazel's right about training, but not just for me. We've got two fronts here. Some of us will have to pursue Nuadu, but this city is also going to be on the front line of an invasion from hell, so everybody else needs to get prepared for that. You've got ideas? Jack said. A few. Terry's hands trembled violently as he sucked on the cigarette willing the tar and smoke he drew into his lungs to bring him calm. It wasn't working. His chest felt tight and his heartbeat thundered in his ears. His cheeks still stung where the pastor had struck him, and he was sure that a bruise was developing. As he exhaled smoke, he sank into a sitting position against the lamppost. The highway was empty. He sat there on the grass, staring across the fair street and the houses further up, including his own. He should get up, run, get inside his own front door, he was still within sight of the church and he couldn't escape the entire congregation if they chose to rush out after him. 
but they had let him go and he still hadn't heard the doors opening or a mount forming. He took another drag of his cigarette, tears streaming down his face. Hey, Terry! He jumped at the sound and looked up to see three figures appear from behind the row of trees which separated church grounds from residential property just off 3rd Street. As they got closer, he recognised them as Tom, Brady and Neil, his friends. Terry! Ah, oh, shit, man. What happened? Was it the Jesus freaks? He stood up, his legs still very shaky. He nodded. In Iowa. Who would have guessed, right? My mom made me come. She said I had to be saved from before the rapture so I wouldn't be left behind. But Pastor John, the bastard, said my soul was tainted. He called me a faggot and sucked me one. Bastard, Brady said. He's still covered in sores and boils? I heard some of them burst and got puss in them, Neil said. Tom shook his head. And yet still the town flocks to him, like sheep, even though Pastor John has been exposed as a false prophet. Harry stared at his friend, as a what? A false prophet, someone who claims to preach the word of the Lord, but is in fact leading people into damnation. Oh man, you sound like one of them Jesus freaks yourself. You misunderstand, Terry. Tom clapped a hand on his shoulder. The Jesus freaks are all beholden to lies and superstition. That's why the plague struck them. But that doesn't mean we're not in the end of times here. The trumpets? The rain of fire and blood? This ain't nothing science can explain. The cigarette in his hand had burned down to the tip. It burned his fingers and he flung it to the floor. Okay, so... So we're in the time of the tribulation. Heading towards the final ruination of Earth and all that. If you can get your head around it. And the floor is open for anybody to be saved if they choose the right path. What path is that? Terry took a step back. Tom took a step forward after him. Terry stopped. His chest so tight now that he was finding it hard to breathe. He started hyperventilating. Tom's fist caught Terry by surprise, connecting hard with the jaw and sending him crashing to the ground. Path dictated by our Lord, of course. Tom's voice echoed in Terry's head as his vision blared. Which means not casting out those who commit abominations, but ridding the world of them, as his word dictates. That was when Terry's vision went black. When he stared back to consciousness, he heard voices around him. Hushed, but many. There was a cold breeze on his face, his back was stiff, and he couldn't move his arms. When he opened his eyes, it was dark, and it took him a few seconds to process what he was seeing. There was a crowd gathered on the football field. It must have been about half the town, covering most of the turf between the two opposing goal lines. They were all looking up at the bleachers, in front of which a makeshift wooden stage had been erected. He was on it his hand bound behind a pole and a pyramid of wood stacked up below him. How long had they been working on this? He looked along the stage and saw others bound the same way he was. To his right, that goth kid, the cheerleader who became a pariah after she said she was raped by the school quarterback, the other cheerleader who had the quarterback's baby, and some old guy Terry didn't recognise. And to his left, Pastor John, his face still covered in sores and boils, Harry leaned forward as far as bindings allowed and spat. I hope you're happy, he yelled. This is your doing. They've turned on you now, but all this hate and madness is on the head of you and your god. The pastor said nothing, only bowed his head and closed his eyes. The goth kid was crying. The cheerleaders and the old guy were still unconscious. He saw Tom emerge from the crowd and step up onto the platform. Tom smiled at Terry and shrugged his shoulders. Tom, Terry shouted. Tom, man, why are you doing this? What's gone into you? Tom raised his hands and the crowd fell silent. What's gone into me? He said, loud enough for his voice to carry across the field. Well, that's a question, isn't it? What's gone into me, Terry, is faith. I was a sinner, I fully admit, just like everyone here. Terry scanned the crowd. He recognised nearly all of the faces. People he'd gone to school with since kindergarten. Teachers, 
the girl who babysat him when he was a kid, the guy from the hardware store and the liquor store, even his mum, all now staring with mania in their eyes as Tom delivered his sermon. Then the angel sounded the first trumpet in heaven, and the tribulation began. Now is the time when a man will be tested, so that those who are worthy can ascend to the presence of our Lord. Amen, said the crowd in a chorus. And with that first trumpet I was chosen. The messenger came to me, and not just me, to many others across America and across the world, and gave me a choice. I could continue my life of sin and face damnation, or I could become an instrument, the voice to call and lead the saints through the tribulation. He paused, then his voice rose to a shout. I made my choice. The crowd cheered, now clearly in frenzy. The other victims were all awake now and crying, struggling in vain against the ropes. Except for Pastor John, who only kept his head bowed. As our first act, we cleanse from among us the sinners, those who have defiled God and committed abominations. He gestured to the goth kid, the witch and worshipper of false idols, then to the cheerleaders, the whores and adulteresses, to the old guy and Terry, the faggots, finally to Pastor John, and the false prophet, who the Lord has struck down with his wrath, so that we may identify him. They shall be put to death, and their blood shall be on their own heads. The crowd roared again. A hand from the crowd passed him up a log, the end wrapped in linen, which from the smell was soaked with gasoline. Tom took a zippo from his pocket and lit it up, the flame burning brightly in the moonlit football field. Tom, you don't have to do this. Terry roared, yet could barely hear himself over the shouts from the crowd and the screaming and begging on the platform. Tom, come on, man. But Tom wasn't listening. In succession, he lit the stack of wood underneath each one of the captives, going in the same order as he had announced them. When he reached Terry, he paused and grinned. Keeping the torch up high, he took several steps forward and leaned to whisper in Terry's ear. You'll like this one, Terry, he said. I'm not doing this to lead anybody to their salvation. The messenger was a demon and I made him a deal. I'm leading these people straight into hell. He drew back and laughed as he lit the pyre underneath Terry before moving on to Pastor John. Terry struggled and shouted, but it was no use. The flames crackled and roared, thick black smoke billowing off them and eating up all the air around him. Maybe, he hoped. He would pass out from the lack of oxygen before he started to burn. Chapter 23 The casket weighed next to nothing on his shoulders as Miles carried it up the steps into the church. He was the front left-hand pallbearer for Lydia. Jack was the front right, and their arms overlapped underneath the box. The church was full as they entered, some hymn playing on the organ that Miles didn't recognise, all heads turning to watch the bearers carry the coffin in. After setting it down on the stand in front of the altar, the bearers took their seats on the front row. The music stopped and a crushing silence overcame Miles. The priest stepped forward and started talking, but he didn't hear the sermon. He mouthed the prayers and the responses as needed, along with the rest of the congregation, but it was automatic. None of it went in. His whole body felt cold and his chest felt tight. Afterwards, outside, he exchanged handshakes and hugs with people whose faces he couldn't place. Abby squeezed him tight and thanked him for coming, told him that Lydia had thought the world of him and talked of nothing else whenever they spoke. He felt his body go numb at hearing this, his mind flashing back to when he had been forced to deliver the killing blow, and sniffed to hold back tears. The wake was in a social club, not too far from the church. The families had clubbed together to put money behind the bar, and once everyone had a drink, a general hum of conversation overtook the place. People gathered together with those they knew, sitting and socialising. Jess and Kit were there, of course, but thankfully they didn't try to force conversation out of him, so other than getting hugs off all of them, he was able to get away with nursing a single pint for most of the time he was there, smiling and laughing in time with everybody else on the table, but otherwise not taking part. Eventually, he excused himself and stepped outside for a cigarette. Once he had lit up, he closed his eyes, trying to ignore the knots rising in his stomach and chest. He flung his cigarette to the floor, unsmoked. I need to get out of here, he said aloud, to nobody in particular. 
Hours later, he found himself on the roof of an apartment building with his legs hanging over the edge, smoking and watching the sun rise over the River Mersey. His mind was elsewhere. We're living that night now two weeks past when he had told Lydia that he loved her for both the first and last time and cut her head from her body. It had been five days since he had last slept and then only for a fitful two hours. His body had felt almost constantly tense for the past day, his arms and legs trembling whenever he sat still for too long. As they were starting to do now, he had finished and stubbed his cigarette. He stood and dropped from the roof, landing easily ten stories below and heading off in the direction of Lydia's house. He still couldn't bring himself to think of it as his own, even though Glenn had told him he could stay there. The only reason he accepted was that he had no other options, not wanting to burden anybody else, or to move back in with his parents and run the risk of them finding out what he was. When he entered the house, he took his phone from his pocket and saw that he had a voicemail. My, it's Jess, his sister said on the voice message. You just disappeared from the funeral, so I hope you're alright, kid. Please give me a call or a text to let me know you're okay, yeah? He snorted. What should he do if he wasn't okay? Katie pulled her coat tighter around her against the chill of the night. She glanced behind her and saw something move out of the light from the lamppost further down the street. It was too dark to tell what. She started walking just a little bit faster and looked back every few steps, but didn't see any more movement. The next street she turned onto was dark and empty. There was a clack sound from the other side of the road. His stomach tensed and she turned to see a man leave one of the houses and walk in the opposite direction. She kept moving. She heard the shouting before she reached the main road. A small group of lads, she saw as she got there. It was stood outside a newsagent, facing an older man with white hair and spiny red skin. A demon. One of the lads shoved him and he stumbled, before raising his hands and taking a few steps back. The group stepped closer to him. Katie quickly looked both ways and crossed the road to avoid the confrontation. Traffic was light, but a few drivers honked or shouted obscenities when they saw the demon. She passed the turn to a terrace street, where the words the devil is among us were daubed on the side of one house in black. She looked back again and this time she saw them. Two male figures, both tall and broad. They turned onto a street behind her and disappeared. But again, she quickened her step. Her breath was heavy and it felt like something was caught in her throat. Further along, she looked back again. The men were back. She caught a better look at them in the headlights of a passing car. One was young and dark with long hair, the other older and white with a cap covering his head. They smiled when the headlights caught their faces. There was nobody else out on the street this far up. The commotion by the news agents seemed to have died away, and there was no other pedestrian traffic. She started running. Very quickly her legs started aching from the effort, and she tried to control her breathing. When an ache started spreading along her collarbone, she decided to turn off the main road. The road she dashed into had no houses on it, only a couple of old garages on either side, most of which were covered in graffiti. She reached the end quickly and found only a brick wall too high to vault over. Still catching her breath, she turned. The two men were almost on top of her now. Despite the fact that their faces were shrouded in shadow, she could still see the grins they wore. She took a few steps backward and opened her coat. From it, she drew a short-bladed machete. This only made the two of them laugh. Their faces changed. You could see the red glow of their eyes and the sharp edges of their teeth. She pressed her back against the wall, trembling with the rush of adrenaline through her body, her heart racing. It was at that moment that Sean and Zach rushed their two stalkers from behind. Despite herself, she let out a cry. Her throat felt tight as she watched the struggle. The vampire stronger, but taken by surprise. Her friends were both armed with machetes, freshly bought from B&Q and not battle-tested. Zack managed to swing his at one vampire's neck, but it wasn't a clean blow and struck against bone and cartilage halfway in. The vampire let out a howl as blood splattered Zack's face and clothes. The other vampire managed to overpower Sean and throw him against the wall, before dragging Zack away from his blade and pinning him to the ground. That was when Katie recovered herself and realised she had to intervene. Her first kick was feeble, but half a second later the follow-up managed to send the vampire sprawling off Zack to the floor, 
That was when a growl from the head of the alley caught her attention and she saw three more vampires running at them. You took your time, the vampire with the blade in its neck said before grunting in pain as it tugged at the weapon. What came next happened too fast for Katie to fully take in. A booted foot slammed into the machete, finishing Zack's attempted decapitation. The vampire on the ground lost his head in one swift, clean swipe of his sword. She felt something scruff her coat and drag her. Then she, Zack and Sean were on the opposite side of the three new vampires, closer to the mouth of the alley. The man standing between them and their opponents was tall and broad shoulders, with thick, shaggy hair. He carried a short sword in one hand, and the vampires watched him wearily. Get out of here, he said. What? She said, having recovered herself. No, who are you? Zack and Sean looked at her. Katie. There was a sound behind them and they turned to see the alley blocked. Four men and two women stood in a cluster, all with long sheaths at their hips. They were all dressed in black, gothic clothing, Victorian-style suits and long coats on the men. The women dressed in what Katie could only describe as fetish wear. Their eyes glowed red out of faces as white as porcelain, and when they bared their teeth they had only fanged canines rather than the shark teeth of the other vampires. You should listen to them, my darling, the woman at the front of this new group said. Leave now, humans. Oi! One of the vampires from the first group shouted. This is Ark Hill. Who the fuck are you? The man with the sword shoved Katie, Zach and Sean towards the mouth of the alley. He then moved in front of them, beckoning and shouting for them to follow. Katie's whole body was tense with adrenaline now, and her throat tight as she dogged after him. The group blocking the alley parted to let them pass, but still he put himself between the humans and them, sword raised. Katie glanced behind her and saw the vampires from the original group moving forward. Their attention not on the humans, but the rival vampires. If that's what they were, since they looked as if they were in costume compared to those whose faces had changed before her eyes. Out of the alley, they broke into a run. By the time they stopped, about half a mile away, her legs were aching and it took her several moments to slow her breathing down. Thanks, Sean said. His dark skin looked paler than normal and his hands were shaking. Seriously, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, you're welcome, the man who had saved them said, his voice thick with sarcasm. Though it wouldn't have been necessary if you weren't such fucking stupid bastards. You what? What the fuck did you think you were doing? Hey mate, Zack cut in. We were... You were getting yourselves killed is what you were doing. Did you really think that was going to work? Use air as bait and sneak up from behind to save the day? You think you're the first ones who ever thought of that stupid fucking movie cliche? It was my idea, Katie said. She swallowed. All the tension and adrenaline had left her body, and now all she felt was tired and stupid. The heat climbing from her neck to her face as this man turned to look at her. He must have seen some of this as he lowered his eyes and sighed. You could have gotten yourselves killed, he said, his tone softer now. Others have. I know, she said. I'm sorry. She caught Zack's eye, saw the red in his cheeks too and willed not to angrily rebut her apology. I mean, I knew about vampires because I was saved from them by a woman called Hazel. I wanted to help others as well. We never... The man held up a hand. Okay, he said. Look, if you really want to fight vampires, then I can't exactly stop you. But you should at least get in touch with people who know what they're doing. I know Hazel, and she wouldn't want you doing this all by yourselves either. Okay, we'll go and see her, she promised. So what's your name then? Miles. And what about those other ones back at the alley? Were they vampires as well? Yeah. He nodded. Very odd ones though. So I'm going to see if I can find them. You should go home. She opened him out to protest, but the look on his face made her reconsider. He turned to Sean and Zach and saw what she was feeling. Confusion, exhaustion, anger and fear all jockeying for position. She still couldn't make sense of everything that had happened. She had more questions for Miles, but when she looked back in his direction he had already gone. When Miles reached the alley there was nobody there. Halfway down lay three more headless corpses. He had been expecting that, as well as the fact that all were from the original group that had been stalking the humans. 
more surprising was the fact that their heads and the heads of their two comrades who died before the rival group had arrived were missing. Miles walked towards the bodies and noticed that the wall next to them was marked with graffiti that hadn't been there earlier. A stylized V overlapped by what looked like a dragon eating its own tail. He took out his phone and took a picture. We'd hoped you would come back. And who are you? Miles said without turning. There was only one of them, so the other six had to be keeping their distance. Is this your gang sign? It is the symbol of the Vampuri. What's that when it's at home? He had heard the name recently, he knew. When? He turned to see what that he was talking to a short, broad-shouldered man with pallid white skin and long black hair tied back in a ponytail. He smiled, showing his mouth had suspected earlier that his canines were fanged. They are the ruling caste of our species, brother, he said. We serve them, as do you. I do. The other vampire's eyes flicked to the corpses on the floor, then back to Miles' face. Ah, I do or I die, is that it? If you wish to be so blunt, yes. He took two steps closer to Miles. Though it needn't be such a confrontational matter. Certainly not as confrontational as your dispute with these vampires. What end were you saving the humans? You say that almost as if you were to save the humans? We let them go, didn't we? Why? The vampire shrugged. Miles drew his blade. You do not pledge your allegiance then? I don't go in for being ruled. As you say. The vampire drew a saber from his sheath, and instantly Miles could feel the presence of the thing as if it were alive. He raised his own sword and took a step back. Then the vampire whistled. Seconds later, his five companions dropped from the rooftops into the alley, in a half circle around him, and put their hands to the hilts of their own sabers. Before they could draw, Miles swiped his sword at the first vampire's weapon. It was just fast enough to catch him off guard and throw him off balance. Then he threw himself at the vampire's chest, driving him to the floor. At the impact, he held the vampire's head to the ground and sliced at his neck, the hand holding the sabre, twitching then falling limp before it could stab at him. Miles could feel another sabre close at his back, in the same way that he might feel a strong heat source. He moved away from it as he leapt to his feet, but when he turned to face his opponents, the swipe cut through his coat and t-shirt and bit into his left arm. He cried out. The heat ran across his arm both ways from the wound, as quick as the click of his fingers, so that he had to clench his hand into a fist to stop it from trembling. He parried another strike, then stepped back over the corpse and retreated out of the alley. He couldn't lift his arm now, and he was nowhere near adept enough with a sword to take on five armed opponents. The vampires seemed to sense this, smiles creeping over their faces as they stepped closer and fanned out to surround him again. The nearest one to him thrust his sword forward. Miles ducked under it and kicked at her legs. When she stumbled, he grabbed her and threw her into the two male vampires to her left. He moved through the gap where she had been to run into an alley. At the end, he leapt six feet off the ground at one wall, placing his feet on it for a split second, only to push himself higher on the opposite wall where he grabbed at the lip of the roof. Once up, he sprinted to the other end and dropped off, placing a building between him and his opponents. They could follow him, of course, since they had abilities he did. So he broke into a run. The wind caught his wound as he moved and seemed to soften the sting of it, allowing him to lift his arms slightly. But when he eventually stopped, satisfied that he wasn't being pursued, the pain hit him like a thunderbolt. Hazel entered the boardroom to find everyone already seated around the table, apart from Jess who was pouring herself a coffee at the counter down the far end of the room. It turns out Katie fancies herself a vampire hunter, Hazel said. It seems Miles rescued her and a couple of lads she knows from certain death. Fucking hell, so the twat is alive then? She tried to look nonchalant, but Hazel saw her arms tense up, making the lean muscle in them more evident. He hadn't been heard from in the five days since Lydia's funeral. When Hazel sat down, Joel shoved a copy of the Liverpool Echo in her direction. Have a look at that. He said. The headline in front of her read, 
vampire to open City Bar. And Hazel stared there for a full minute so that she was sure she had read it right before saying, You fucking what? That was my first reaction. There's a quote from this vamp. He calls himself Laurent de Castle now. And I'm trying to find out if he's got any kind of documented history where he says that with everything that's happened recently, he felt it was time for vampires to come out of the shadows and reveal themselves because they're friends and allies of humanity. Taylor put a coffee cup down on the table with a loud thud, making everyone look at her. She was gritting her teeth. It's bollocks, she said. Whoever he is, he's playing an angle. Of course he is, Hazel said. But will people buy it? I mean, the fact that they're real vampires, let alone the rest. The press and that are generally taking it as an act, theatre. But given everything else that's happened, there are plenty of believers, both fans and detractors. Well, the fact that they're killing all the vampires will help their case. Hazel hadn't heard Miles come in. He looked tired and haggard. There were heavy bags under his eyes. His skin was pale and his cheeks were sallow. Thick stubble covered his face. She glanced at Jess and saw her staring at her brother, but with her face set so as to not give away what she was feeling. They call themselves the Vampuri. Miles went on. The old vampire hierarchy, Joel said, recalling the conversation they'd had about whether vampire blood can make a human immortal. Or at least they're using the same name. What do you know about them? Miles shook his head. They fancy themselves the vampire ruling class, and it looks like they put themselves into a turf war with Gaz's vamps. Why though? Hazel asked. Doesn't that effectively pit them against Nuadu as well? That was all I learned before they tried to cut my head off, Miles said with a shrug. If they're the Vampuri, rather than just pretenders using the name, Pruth said, then they were never exactly on good terms with Nuadu, though they did avoid open conflict with him. There's something about the sabers they use as well. Miles showed them a cut on his arm, still red and raw. As soon as they drew him, I got this sense of them that I get with demons and other vampires like they were alive. The wounds they inflict don't heal like anything else either. I'll do more research, Joel said. Find out what we can. So they are killing other vampires then? Taylor asked. What about humans? They claimed that even if I hadn't saved them, they would have let them go. Miles looked at Hazel. Did they come in, by the way? Realising that he was referring to Katie, Zach and Sean, she nodded. Good. I was in two minds about it, but she said that she knew you, so... Anyway, I'll let you get on with your meeting. It's your meeting too, Jack said. I want you to be part of the council. Council? The work we do isn't in the shadows anymore, and we're on a war footing. That's why I've reorganised the outfit. I want those most capable of leading our units helping me make the decisions. Right, okay. No. Miles? Jess rose to her feet. Don't be a dickhead. Never mind, he said with a sigh. What am I staying for? Any other news? Jack looked over to Joel, who fumbled quickly through the papers in front of him until he found a notebook which he had scribbled in. Uh, yeah, basically it looks like we've got another element to contend with as well as the trumpets, the demons and the vampires. Miles groaned. What else could there be? According to the prophecy we translated, just after the first trumpet, two men bowed and broken will be freed from prison by a magistrate of hell. He will give them not only freedom but power. These are the witnesses whose words will bring plagues and woes upon mankind for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Yeah. Shit. So how do we find them and stop them then? I'm working on it. The prophecy doesn't say, but I've been able to trace various omens, freak weather patterns, unexplained phenomena and the like, since they were supposed to have been freed. They seem to be focused around somewhere in the Far East, so I'm just working on narrowing it down. Right, okay. Miles said. Once you've figured out where they are, then we can discuss what to do with them. Let me know, alright? Joel nodded. Miles turned to leave. My, Jess called after him, her eyes listening. 
You don't have to go yet, you know. Yeah, I do. Got something to do, he said, not looking back as he left the room. Jess blinked and the threat of tears was gone. He's a fucking wanker sometimes, he said before sitting down again. Anyway, where were we? All of this around you. Arfan gestured at the broken, lopsided walls and the dust-covered desks in front of him. It was once a school. A centre of education until the Taliban decided that education was against Islam and the Sharia. He laughed, looking directly into the camera. Yet where are they now? Struck down by the plague of boils and sores. Exposed, with all the others who claim to be the voice of Allah on this earth. As Masih ad-Dajjal the false messiahs who will lead the faithless away from Allah. We are in the final period of Alamatu Yamis Tha'ar, before Yam al where the dead will rise to be judged. Somewhere outside there was a loud bang. The ground shook, followed by automatic weapons fire. The men gathered behind the camera looked nervous. One or two of them were wearing the ankle-length robe or thob, traditional in this region, but most were in suits. They were businessmen and academics, not militants. Up until now, at any rate. Still, Arfan continued his address. Right now, between them, the infidels and the false messiahs have the following of most of the people on this earth. But have faith. That will soon change. Now begins the jihad of the Mahdi. Let this be no minor insurrection, no simple act of terror with a bomb strapped to a fanatic, but a true holy war in the name of salvation. More gunshots nearby. His voice rose and he raised his hand in a dramatic gesture. In the name of the Mahdi and in the sight of Allah, we will conquer. We will fill the earth with justice as it is presently filled with injustice and tyranny. Arfan lowered his hands and his voice once more as the cameraman brought the image in close to focus on his face. My message to all who watch this recording is thus. Reject all those whose teachings have seen them struck with boils and sores. They are the Dajjal and they will lead you astray. Join us in our jihad. You will know us by our signs and by our banners. The camera cut and his audience cheered. He thanked them all for their support, shook hands, and told them that soon enough everything would fall into place before urging them to head out to get on the trucks. He gave the cameraman orders to head out right away and ensure that the tape was edited and broadcast as soon as possible. Then he was alone in the ruins of the classroom. You did well, a voice said. He turned to see the white man in the suit who had first approached him the day after the trumpets had sounded. As full of anger and conviction as any holy warrior in the region. Lucius, you know that many will reject me, or turn to others who also claim to be the Mahdi. Lucius smiled. You do not know who you are talking to, clearly. As you said, they will know you by the signs and by your banners. Anybody can craft a banner. Arfan said. Yes. Lucius clapped a hand on his shoulders. But anybody cannot engineer it so that their rivals are plagued by sores and boils. They walked towards the doors after Arfan's men. They will believe you. They will follow you. And they will wage a holy war in your name as the world around them goes to shit. Have faith, my friend. Arfan pushed the door open and stepped into the corridor, wincing against the sunlight flooding into the space where the ceiling no longer shut. Yes, but he turned only to find that Lucius was already gone. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Philip Dickens Books, for more writing and story related content. From the Hill of Megiddo is also available on your favourite podcast service. There's a new episode of this story every Monday, and next week we'll see the demons try to carve out a place in the world as two factions of vampires go to war. See you then.